On the corner of Superior and Russell, just a few blocks east of my house, there is a historical marker framed by flowers and small bushes. It stands alone in an open field facing the street. It marks the site of the old Milwaukee Iron Company rolling mill. It's a place where they used to flatten sheets of metal. It was at this mill on May 5, 1886, that nearly 1,500 workers marched on the mill to demand an eight-hour workday. Today, such a demand is standard in most workplaces, but at the time, workers were fighting a difficult battle for labor rights. As the 1,500 workers approached the mill, they encouraged the others there to join the protest. To meet the strikers was a local militia called to the scene by Governor Jeremiah Rusk. The militia was poised on top of a hill, armed with rifles, in front of the rolling mill. As the protesters approached the mill, getting about 200 yards from the militia, the militia opened fire upon the unarmed crowd, killing seven people. Today, this event is often referred to as the Bayview Massacre, or the Bayview Tragedy. At the time, the violence shook the city of Milwaukee and the state of Wisconsin. Those fighting for labor rights, though, were not discouraged by the deadly reaction of the state, and in the decades that followed, Wisconsin, and especially Milwaukee, would become the center of progressive and even socialist politics fighting for workers' rights. Following the tragedy, a prominent labor activist at the time said, quote, The intelligent citizens have a weapon mightier than the ball or the bayonet, the ballot. Mighty indeed as Milwaukee would go on to have mostly socialist mayors from 1910 to 1960. But is Milwaukee still a union town? Are we still a bastion of progressive politics? Maybe? Bridge the city, whoa, whoa. Bridge the city, yeah. Bridge the city, yeah. Gotta bridge the city, the city. Bridge the city, whoa, whoa. Bridge the city, yeah. Bridge the city, yeah. Gotta bridge the city, the city. You're listening to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. I'm your host, Benjamin Rangel, and today we're talking about the role of unions in Milwaukee. But if you're like me, you might need a bit of a refresher to provide some context. And so I spoke with a professor from Marquette University. Yeah, my name is Sam Harshner. I'm a uh, visiting instructor at Marquette University. I teach history and political science. I started the conversation about the specific differences between public and private unions. Because recently, unions were in the headlines because of the role of police unions and the way those unions protected police officers from punishment. What is the difference between a private sector union, so we're going to be talking about Collectivo in this episode, and a public sector union like the police or teachers union? Uh, generally speaking, it's, it's, it's largely an, an issue of law. Um, you know, unions are unions. Um, uh, certain state laws prohibit public uh, public unions from uh, from occurring. Period. And certainly in the state of Wisconsin, uh, that's the case. Unions can can exist in the public sector, but they're prohibited from bargaining for anything other than you know mere cost of living wage increases. And so, so you know, there's really uh, very little uh, capacity for unions to to form in the public sector in Wisconsin. Um, there, there are some there are some arguments that uh, that since public sector unions are associated with government, there's already a democratic control over these uh, uh, over these institutions. So why do we need a union? Um, you know, on the face of that, it's pretty um, that's a, that's a pretty false argument. Every governor I've ever talked to has wanted to cut staff and, and lower wages. Um, whether they were Republican or Democrat, um, simply because those are the constraints put on the state. And so without it, without a union there to, to, uh, to, to bargain back, there's uh, bargain, I'm sorry, bargain with the, with the, uh, with the administration, there's, there's really no way to protect wages, benefits, working conditions, et cetera. Um, so, so, I mean, there is no real difference. I mean, the, these are, these are, um, organizations that are, um, uh, you know, that are, of organizations of workers that are coming together to bargain collectively against the kind of, you know, hegemonic power of the boss. So I did, you know, I think it's, it's more an issue of law than anything else. Yeah. And I did ask that question because it was really interesting this past summer when there were uh, talks about defunding the police and obviously still conversations around uh, policing. And there was a bright light displayed on the police unions, right? And the power of the police union as a public sector union. And I saw a lot of, uh, you know, named progressives who typically would be advocates of labor unions start 
you know, getting in this tricky position or saying things publicly that were anti-union, anti-public union uh, because of the power and role of the police union. And so I guess, is there any um, any more you want to any more uh, information you want to provide to like contextualize maybe the difference between a police union and a labor union or? Yeah, I mean, uh, unions are are imperfect institutions like any human institution. And I think when we look at um, when we look at what's happening in police unions, what is occurring is that police unions are protecting, um, you know, protecting practices that uh, that uh, that assault the well being and even lives of of, of uh, black and brown people primarily or disproportionately in this country, um, and that that certainly is something that needs to be addressed and 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 uh, and pushed back against. And so so there's you know I think when when if and when there's a, there is a a union that's supporting abusive ta- tactics. There is no reason why that should not be criticized and and uh, and, and organized against. Um, you know, it's, it's a far cry from from advocating for for wage uh, you know wage increases for for janitorial staff in in uh, you know in a state building, right? So I think that the you know I mean it's using using police unions to go after public unions or unions in general is is a real you know I mean that's a that's a real straw man of an argument. These are you know these are not these are not uh, you know anti um, you know people who are pushing back against police unions are not anti union. They are they are anti uh, you know police violence. I think that's uh, that's that's the you know that's the way I would distinguish that. Often, at least in my conversations with friends about unions, inevitably a single story or anecdote comes up. And it's about a worker who had done something wrong and was protected by the union, whether that's a private union or a public union. So is there anything there? Are they protecting, quote unquote, bad workers? Yeah, there. I mean, there are good and bad workers in every industry, and and certainly, um, you know, there are teachers who who are who are there for the wrong reasons. I, I would say, you know, knowing teachers, that's a relatively small minority of people. Teachers are really mission driven, and they're there for they're for, they're almost certainly there for the right reason. But that that aside, I think what unions do, what teachers unions do, is that they. Um, they don't. Um, <clears throat> they don't ensure bad teachers stay in place. What they do is they they ensure that there's due pro- due process there to uh, to assure that that uh, that people aren't being fired, uh, you know, uh, on a whim. That people aren't being let go without any without any protections, and that um, you know that um, uh, you know that that really there there is a there's a proper weighing of evidence in in each case, and I think. Um, that's what we'd want for any industry. You know, one of the one of the biggest issues we have in in pretty much every you know kind of uh, working class uh, position at this point um, is that people can be fired for no no apparent reason. Just you know, and the, and that is uh, that's led to a precarity that's that's caused all sorts of social tensions. Um, that's created uh, you know a, really undermined the American dream for most people. The ability, the idea that they could ever even attain uh, you know attain to uh, middle class uh, you know lifestyles and security. Um, and so you know the, these things these things occur. There are certain I'm sure there are anecdotes we could pull out, but but anecdotes don't tell the whole story. So where are we in our country and especially our city when it comes to unions? Amazon workers recently tried and failed to unionize down in Alabama, but here in Milwaukee, Collectivo Coffee could become the largest coffee chain in the country to unionize. So are we witnessing a resurgence? We have a, we have a, a, a tremendous a tremendously long way to go. There are certain reasons for optimism though and I, and I think really honestly Ben the the, the biggest re- reason for optimism in terms of unionization is that the the working world for for just working people has gotten so bad. Material conditions are so terrible for people. Their access to jobs that sustain families is so is so minimal. Um, people are so precarious in their jobs are working longer hours for, for less pay. Um, you know that 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 is really what's what's going to drive the unionization effort more than anything is that this is the reality we're, we're in right um we need to we have to push back we have no choice it's getting it's getting that bad um you know i think um what we see with with the amazon effort is um was really encouraging uh, that in the midst of alabama we saw we saw a real live um uh, push to try to get uh to try to try to win unionization rights um, I think it's def- the defeat of that of that uh, that effort really shows um, the, the the ways in which the employer holds all the cards in this in this situation right now. And that is, you know, I mean, really, if you look at the uh, if you look at the Amazon effort, really what happened, the best explanation I've heard is that they went in there with a you know, you go into a unionization effort and you, you file with the NLRB when you have, you know, 60, 70 percent of people on board with your with your with your plan. Um, they went in with 60 or 70 percent with uh, on a unit of 1500 people. And in the initial negotiations, Amazon increased that to six thousand. 
So these were these were 4,500 people they'd never talked to. They had to they were playing catch up from the beginning. And in the meantime, when you get into uh, an election process, the uh, the boss can just bring you into meetings, beat up on you, threaten you, lie to you, all these sorts of things uh, to to erode your ability to uh, uh, you know kind of kind of win an election. And so really, um, it's not surprising they lost given the circumstances. Um, it doesn't, but, but, you know, it's not, um, it, it's, you know, it's certainly not cause for celebration now, um, in, in Milwaukee more, more, uh, more locally. I mean, I think uh, the Colectivo effort, um, has been really, uh, really inspiring to, to all of us who've been involved in labor in this, in this, um, in this city. So where are things with the Colectivo workers? Well, I spoke with one organizer. Hi, my name is Hillary Lasconis and I'm a Colectivo coworker. And here's the story of those workers. Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. It's been a long year. I am a Collectivo co-worker who is also a volunteer organizing committee member for the Collectivo Collective Union. Hillary started working at Collectivo after some time at college and was inspired to apply there herself after experiencing the kindness of an employee there. Um, it was actually somebody who worked there at the time. I was... I didn't have enough money for a cup of coffee. And this person kind of put that together and just gave me a refill without no questions asked. And it was super decent. And um, so when I found myself looking for work um, post-college, I was interested in, in applying to Collectivo and really prepared for my interview and learned all the things that I admire about the company so that I could talk about them in an educated way. And um, I was really thrilled to be a part of the company. And then I've been a coworker at that Humboldt location, the the one in River West, the roastery. That one is also the headquarters for uh, management. So because of my proximity to management, and then also the number of years I've been with the company, I've observed some of the issues that um, co-workers are having across the company with communication and things like that. And so I became involved with the union organizing. Um, best of your abilities, the path to unionization, how did it start? And then where are we now? I know that's a big question. No, no, I love big questions because I only have big answers. So uh, like, and by that, I mean, long answers. Um, so uh, unionizing is something that a lot of us, I think, have talked about here and there, especially when Stone Creek uh, had their organizing drive. A lot of us started to think, this is something that we could maybe do. Maybe that's an option. But then there was never um, enough concentrated um, kind of talk about that. There was never enough of us in one place to really get the idea of unionizing off the ground. For workers in the service industry, we have become pretty used to not being listened to when it comes to asking the companies that we work for to improve working conditions. And in the case of Collectivo, we know that the problems that existed pre-COVID have existed for at least a decade, and they exist not just at the lowest level. We're kind of really in tune with the fact that we don't have a lot of leverage. And I think one way for us to get that leverage is to to join together in solidarity. Um, and so that was, I think, the, everybody's instinct um, when the coronavirus pandemic first started popping up on the news and then um, kind of got closer and closer to home. Um, and Stone Creek was actually um, one of the cafes that closed and gave their workers paid time off um, during that time. And seeing that, Collectivo workers actually mobilized on our um Facebook group meme page um, to post the letters that we were writing to HR to ask about um, closing the comp or closing the cafes 
and getting paid time off um, for our worker safety. And then encouraging everybody else to write letters and post them. But then still we weren't being um, given any indication that the company was going to step in and, and um, protect the workers. Um, so at that point, somebody took like the best of our letters and published it to change.org. And it was then with the solidarity of our communities um, in Milwaukee, but then also in Madison and Chicago, signing on um, in support of Collectivo workers that actually finally got the company to respond and to grant two weeks pay time off to cafe workers um, and to close cafes for what was supposed to be two weeks. Hillary and her co-workers felt that that was a real victory, but then realized there were other workers like those in the bakery, in the warehouse, who they weren't in solidarity with. They were still working despite the pandemic, despite the cautionary conditions. I really got involved in the union organizing in um, support of those workers and trying to just follow their lead and do whatever I can to... um, help them get the protections and benefits that they that they needed and that they were looking for at the time. Um, and so then we kind of looked at other uh, places that have organized um, and realized that there wasn't a, a single uh, labor organization that really represented um, workers like us. Um, and so we started just to kind of say, especially in that first couple of weeks of the pandemic where everything shut down, there wasn't really a lot of, there weren't really a lot of um, labor organizations that were open for business and like willing to um, meet with us in person. Um, and so we were limited in kind of who we could approach, but we spoke to several labor organizations and then um, it's a big undertaking and we chose the IBW. And so I think for some listeners, it might be, um, it might be interesting for them to be listening to this or maybe have read about your efforts and to hear that you are trying to unionize with the IBEW, which is the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say for some folks, it could be like, wait, electrical workers, Collectivo workers, they're not electrical workers. Like, what can you sort of maybe clarify for folks just quickly? Talk a little bit more about why is it that you had to be with this other organization and why is this organization called the electrical workers and you all are cafe mm-hmm. workers and, and, and other things? Can you clarify that for us? Hearing that the IBW is the union that we chose to represent us is a bit confusing for people and it definitely was a big. Um, talking point that our management, upper management um, at Collectivo had as far as casting doubt on the idea of of organizing and, and voting yes for a union. Um, and so I totally uh, sympathetic to that view and kind of the confusion there. And it was something that I had to learn really quickly. <laughs> So essentially, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers is an established labor organization with resources, including attorneys, that help smaller labor organizations like the Collectivo Workers organize and navigate a complicated system. But there was also another connection the workers had to the IBEW. My dad is actually in the he's a uh, IBEW uh, organizer in the state of Illinois. Um, he's on the construction side, so he isn't involved in, in our campaign, but um, he helped me set up the meeting just to as one of the labor organizations that we were considering. Um, and because we're such a big company and we exist in two states and three cities, it seemed important to... Um, find an organization that was 
confident that they could um, facilitate organizing on that scale. And so how has how has management, how has Collectivo reacted or or responded to your efforts and the efforts of your coworkers? Um so I think Collectivo has responded in a way that we're we've now become used to seeing companies respond, put a lot of obstacles up have tried to deter us really in every way that I could conceive. And I think that's been a bit of, um, that's been disappointing because a lot of us to apply to Collectivo because of the name (laughs) Um, and the, the way that they describe um, the collective culture. And so to, to suggest a union, especially at such a time where workers were vulnerable, I wasn't expecting to have so many obstacles put in our path um, and to f- have seen so much retaliation in the past year. One of the most extreme forms of retaliation is terminating an employee who is organizing. And that's something that actually Collectivo has been accused of doing. Here's one former employee, Robert Penner, who claims he was terminated because of his union organizing efforts at Collectivo. Yeah, uh, my name is Robert Penner. Um, uh, I've lived in Milwaukee uh, for about eight or nine years, something like that. Um, and, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a worker. I'm a, uh, I'm an organizer, uh, workplace organizer, union organizer. Yeah. I mean, most recently I've been working on the, the campaign to unionize Colectivo Coffee Roasters. Yeah. And, and that's sort of why we're here today to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, can you just, um, share with listeners, what is your relationship currently with Colectivo and the unionization efforts that are happening there? Yeah, um, I'm not employed by Colectivo anymore, so the, there really isn't any official relationship between me and Colectivo. Um, but I'm still working on the unionization campaign, and I have been uh, since I got uh, formally let go by Colectivo back in October. Um, so no formal relationship to Colectivo, the company, um, but to the unionization effort, I am still one of the union organizers on the volunteer organizing committee. Yeah. And so if you're comfortable, do you mind getting into a little bit about, uh, you know, what happened, uh, if you don't mind, between you and Colectivo? Um, there are some reports that the business itself is uh, has been retaliating against employees. Can you sort of speak to that and share what what happened between you and Colectivo? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell I'll tell the whole thing. I've told it a few times and it's appeared in, in some various publications. Um, but when uh, when COVID nineteen started, um, I mean, we had already been in the warehouse. We'd been union organizing for a few months, really on the down low, at that point. Um, and when COVID nineteen really became a serious matter here, um, they offered everybody voluntary layoffs. Um, which at the time, I was like, okay, well, you know, we'll do like two or three weeks of quarantine, and then everything will be back to normal. Um, and I could just come back to work, you know, won't be, won't be a big deal. I mean, nobody really knew how this was going to go. Um, so I took a a voluntary layoff and I was like, okay, yeah, you know, three, three weeks at home, uh, avoid getting the virus and then everything will be, will be fine. Um, but that's not how it turned out. Um, and my voluntary layoff lasted for a long time. Um, and I, I started to try to figure out how I could get back to work uh, in June. Um, so I, I started to call my manager at the warehouse and, you know, see, hey, you know, are, are you, do you need people? Are you ready for me to come back yet? Um, and then July, and this is after the union had kind of made its presence officially known to management. Um, we did that in, in June, I believe. That could be incorrect. I'm sure Hillary has the right date on that. It was first publicly reported uh, in August. To, I was trying to get back to work, uh, uh, get back to, to working in the warehouse. Um, so, you know, about once a month, I was asking 
my manager, you know, oh, can you know, are you ready for me to come back? Can I come back yet? Um, and and finally in September, early September, he called me and said, yeah, you know, we're ready for you. When can you start? Can you start, you know, Monday? Um, and I was like, oh yeah, hell yeah, I can start on Monday. Like, you know, let's let's go, let's get back to work. Um, cause I was really eager to get back and, and join, you know, join the union organizing effort and do advocacy in the warehouse and among the roasters and the drivers and the shop people. Um, because you know, your, your, your best organization, you know, the best organizing you can do is not on social media or, or not in the community or by talking to politicians or, or whatever. The best organizing you can do is on the shop floor. And that's where I really wanted to be. Um, so the day before maybe it was a couple days before, but the, it was like the day before I was scheduled to come back, the COO of Colectivo, Leo Leto, uh, who isn't with the company anymore, he, he retired uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, called me and said, hey, you know, you're not welcomed back. Um, we, we don't need you back. Uh, we've got all the things that you do covered. You know, the warehouse doesn't need any help, which was contrary to what the actual warehouse manager told me. Um, and so I believe that it just wasn't true. Um, and he was like, we, we don't, we don't need you. We don't, we don't want you back. You're, you're still laid off, um, until further notice. And I was like, well, that, that kind of sucks. Um, you know, I, I was told that there was work for me. So it's really strange that you're coming in and, and saying that there isn't work for me. And, and he said that, uh, the warehouse manager had been out of line in inviting me back, which also strange. Um, so the, I wasn't fired, but I was laid off. But then on October 7th, I got an email like several other, uh, of my coworkers who are also union organizers did, um, saying that we were permanently laid off, that we are, um, our positions had been eliminated is what I think the wording of the email said, um, and that we were free to reapply, um, when positions opened up on the website. Um, but yeah, essentially that, that we were no longer, our jobs weren't, weren't there for us anymore, even though we had been promised that we would have jobs when we came back. Um, Colectivo did switch HR directors in the middle of all of this too. So that was also a a problem, um, because, you know, that previous HR director had said, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that all of you get brought back, like no question. And, And the new HR director uh, reversed all of those those promises. Now might be a good time to say that I did reach out to Collectivo to confirm or verify some of what Robert's saying here. I wasn't able to hear back from them. I waited quite a bit of time for them to respond. And so I wasn't able to verify everything Robert was saying, but um, Hillary did recommend that I reach out to him and confirmed his perspective. So then I... Uh... I started working uh, a part-time job doing some janitorial stuff, um, and it really wasn't wasn't much. I was only doing like 10, 15 hours a week. Um, but somebody somebody in upper management uh, at Colectivo saw me working that job and called the owner of the company. Um, I'm not sure if that that upper management person called the owner of the company or if the owners of Colectivo called the the owner of that company. Um, but they, they called them and they're like, look, you gotta, you gotta fire this guy. Uh, he's a radical, they called me a radical labor organizer and a threat to your business. Um, which is pretty funny. I mean, they're right, but, uh, not on the threat to your business part, but on the labor organizer part. Um, so Robert claims that his new employer actually let him go based on this call from Collectivo's management. And so that was that was pretty disappointing because that's a that's a low blow and it's illegal as well to do that. And I mean they've categorically denied that that ever happened, but like I I know what happened. There there would be no reason for them to you know this new job to come to me and be like, hey, um, your your former employer called you if they hadn't, uh, right? So um, I I ended up having to leave that job and, and later my former manager in a, in an interview with a, a different website. Uh, confirmed that that is what happened. I can't remember the exact interview. I've done I've done a few of these so far, um, but you know it, it was confirmed by my former manager um, in a conversation with with a, another reporter. Um, so it, you know this this is something that did happen. 
what was the feeling like uh, in terms of being let go uh, despite feeling like there was still work to be done and you were being let go, not because you were you know bad at your job, but because uh, they wanted to retaliate against you? Like just generally, what was your feeling? Well, I mean, it, it was definitely surprising. Um, I mean, you know, I, I do like Colectivo a lot. I mean, the, the coffee is excellent. The baked goods are excellent. The food is excellent. The atmosphere is, is, is really great. Um, you know, I, it is, you know, it, it's a good company because of the workers. Um, and I think that's the, the point that I want to underline the most is the people that, that roast the coffee, that, you know, choose the beans and kind of design the blends and the people that are working, making the drinks and, and doing, you know, the, the food preparation. That's what makes this a great company is the people that make it all happen. Um, and so to the, for, for the owners to kind of take this cavalier attitude towards workers that really do valuable work uh, for the company and, and are the responsible for turning out the high quality product um, that they do, um, it, it, you know, it's, it came off as very, uh, very disrespectful. Robert goes on to say that he feels that he was highly valued at the company and was able to be a standout worker. But despite that, was let go. And so I was wondering, you know, this was all happening in the backdrop of COVID. Did some of these layoffs happen because of COVID and not necessarily because of their unionization efforts? Yeah, yeah. Definitely other people got laid off uh, during this whole thing. Um, I mean, and unrightly so. And I don't think those weren't were in terms of retaliation. For the most part, um, it was just because, you know, they, they were obviously downsizing, you know, they, they wanted to downsize their staff significantly. Um, and maybe they were speculating that, you know, people that they were laying off were, would support the union in election, or they had gotten false information that those people supported the union or whatever. A bunch of people got, got laid off. And a lot of people took the voluntary layoff at the beginning of the pandemic and weren't invited back. So not not everything that they were doing was was retaliation, um, but there were some pretty clear cut cases of retaliation against union organizers where the circumstances were extenuating. They were different from a, a normal layoff. Like for me, getting invited back and then getting uninvited and then getting terminated, or with Zoe, um, you know, being told, "Hey, you know, you're." We're, we're eliminating your position and you're getting laid off permanently. And, uh, you know, them saying, oh, well, you know, I'll take a, I'll take a demotion to continue working here. Like I'll, I'll go back to doing, you know, barista and, and cash register stuff, like no problem. And they were like, no. So there, there's a f- definitely a few cases where it's, it's um, pretty obvious it was retaliatory against the organizers. Um, but um, they, I mean, they did do regular layoffs throughout the thing, just like any other business. Challenging working conditions, layoffs, and the threat of a global pandemic can do a lot to the morale of workers. Here's Hillary again. Um, and I think workers are pretty exhausted um, just as a product of working through the pandemic, being an essential worker, and kind of, I mean, we had an election in the middle of all of that. There, it's just... There's been so much over the past year that it it's it's not difficult to exhaust people and to play into the apathy or to exploit the fear and the apathy that already exists and to make the same promises that they're going to now they're going to start listening and now recently they've shifted more um, since the voting ended, the voting period ended for our election, they've shifted to the message of moving forward together. Um, and I hope that that's the case. I hope that they can commit to being more authentic in their in their name and in their uh, the culture that they that they promote. But you know, we'll see. The one thing to remember about my conversation with Hillary is that it was happening just uh, following the vote by Amazon workers to decline the establishment of a union in Alabama. A lot of people who are pro-union will say, 
how could the workers be so self-defeating in not voting for a union? Um, and, you know, I don't blame them. And I don't blame the workers who voted against our union um, because I think the state of the unions in America has been purposely, you know, purposely and needlessly made difficult. On that note, here's Professor Harshner again. You know, just like everywhere else in the country, just like all the rest of these union towns, all these other uh, industrial uh, industrial Rust Belt cities, uh, starting in the 1970s, really, um, what we saw was was industry really taking a beating in this country. Um, and uh, as a result of, uh, you know, kind of international competition, uh, free trade agreements that allowed for capital to be invested overseas more easily and more cheaply, um, labor really lost all its leverage in this country. And that's a longer story. We could go into that. Um, and Milwaukee's, you know, Milwaukee's union penetration rates have been declining since, uh, you know, since the since the 70s. There's also there's also a sense in which the prosperity that America experienced in the 1950s um, really made people uh, not value unions because basically there was a there was there was labor peace in some ways during that era because uh, firms could pay their employees pretty high and still make exorbitant profits because we 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 stood astride the uh, world economy like some colossus. Um, and it was only later in the later in the decade when, um, uh, you know, when when those profit rates later in the 50s and, and, and 60s, when when that profit rate started declining, that you saw the, the businesses start to push back against that. But by that time, you know, um, a lot of uh, a lot of unions become kind of accommodationist and, and corporatist in their outlook and, and were not less willing to engage in the sort of militant action that usually wins. And by that, I mean, strikes and in and, and protests and these sorts of things um, in, in a lot of countries. You know, I know in places like Germany, unions are very much just part of the almost part of the state and that they, they, they negotiate with the with the firms and and with the state uh, for, for adequate contracts. And they're 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 also very, you know, kind of they're very they're very focused on the firm's success in similar ways in, in certain in certain areas. But the but there's enough to go around in that context. So if there is such a strong connection between unionization and the way a worker is treated, why would a worker ever choose to vote against joining a union? Well, here's Hillary's explanation. Um, the intimidation and the like captive audience meetings um, the, that companies engage in is hard to overcome when for a lot of people, especially in the service industry, and I know at Amazon this was the case, um, they've had worse jobs. Everybody has a can point to another job that they've had where you know conditions or benefits were worse, um, and so then they they don't feel like it's appropriate to ask for more, um, and so it's difficult to navigate as a worker, um, but in my feeling, especially throughout the pandemic, has been, well, what do we have to lose? <laughs> because we're already risking our lives and um, for the sake of coffee. I mean, I think it's worth it, but it's it's a hard thing to to risk your your job for your workplace to be improved, you know? So what happened with the vote? Despite Collectivo hiring the Labor Relations Institute, a consulting firm that supports employers' efforts to prevent workers from unionizing, there was a vote in April. And it was a tie, 99 to 99. And so some of those ballots were challenged, and those ballots challenged go to the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. And so what comes next? And so it's kind of um, unclear the exact reasons why these ballots were challenged, but we know that because they challenged them, they're probably yes votes, or the company believes that. And so these hearings where we are asking the NRB to open these ballots and making the case that these ballots are were valid votes um, based on the election terms, I'm certain that once we open them, we'll win. And then after that, I believe the companies made an objection to the entire election. Um, and that's really their last chance to throw a wrench in our organizing. Um, and so they've taken that chance. And 
I don't think that will hold up at all, but it's just another another step we have to take. And then after that, we will have our union and it'll just be about certifying our union and then working towards a contract. But even before we certify, our wine garden rights will go into effect. So if I believe that I am going to be disciplined as a result of a meeting that I'm being asked to attend, then I can ask my representative, my union representative, who um, will be another worker to attend that meeting uh, with me as as a witness. Um, so that's huge, especially kind of with some of the more psychological intimidation that has happened in the past year. That's a huge thing for workers to have. And then um, after we're certified, we will move from at-will employment to just cause employment. So we can't be fired without there being a, a legitimate reason for that. Just being being able to know that we can't be fired for no reason is is a, a huge thing for us, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so realistically, how might, uh, you know, assuming you are successful, the, the, the contract comes up eventually, you all agree to a contract, um, thinking down the line here, how might a, a successful effort impact the consumer and customers of Collectivo, folks who might be listening to this and uh, maybe don't have necessarily skin in the game one side or the other, but love Collectivo for their coffee and their other items and their, their consumers? How might things change, if at all, for them? A lot of the things that coworkers want to see improved have to do with the obstacles that we have in being able to do our job well. There have been a number of just technical things. Before before COVID, we were just starting to develop our app. And then as we reopened, we quickly put we quickly implemented online ordering. And so we've never seen a post-COVID world with this new ordering system. And now we're seeing a lot of just practical concerns going unaddressed. So if customers do see a change on their end, it'll be a lot of the improvements that that coworkers are asking for to to create a better experience for the customers. Working in your neighborhood is is such a unique and rewarding experience and uh I think that we really it's our job to make the customer happy. And we want to do that so bad that we were fighting to be listened to and so that we could do that better. So as we close out this episode, I wanted to end us with Professor Harshner and just a sense of what's at stake. You know, what is the impact of unionization broadly on our economy and the working class and the middle class? but also where we're at now and whether or not those who support unions should feel optimistic. You know, if you look at the broader perspective, since unionization rates have gone down in this country, we've seen a stagnation of wages. Uh, literally from the from uh, the year I was born, 1974 to today, uh, median wages in this country have not increased. And so that, you know, that is um, even as wealth and productivity have gone through the roof. So um, that is a, uh, you know, that's a problem and that is directly tied to unionization. So, you know, if you get in, if you get in conversations where people are pulling out one or two cases of a teacher who was held, you know, who was kept in their job a little long, you know, I think that the argument there is like, yeah, but, but, you know, millions of people have been, have been underserved by, or, uh, you know, underpaid for, for decades now because of, uh, because of a lack of union penetration in this country. And, uh, and we're, we're at a point now where, um, uh, you know, uh, where uh, we're starting to see um, little, little blips of, of, uh, of, of uh, an indication at least that, that there are going to be uh, new union struggles emerging. Um, but they're not taking place in industrial uh, industrial um, situations, right? Uh, they're primarily what we're seeing in Milwaukee these days are service workers um, and workers in in um, professional environments like teaching that are really leading the agitation. And it's primarily because 
these are people who have a little more leverage than, than people in, in, uh, in these industrial jobs. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. But, um, you know, I, I think that's that's hopeful. It's it's still very uh, nascent. It's not it, these aren't large scale efforts in, in, in most cases. But uh, but there is some indication that, that there's there's. Some- All right. There you have it, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to Bridge the City. We are so grateful for you all. Also grateful to our patrons. Remember, you can support Bridge City for as low as just $4.14. That's 414 on patreon.com slash bridge the city. Also want to give a big thank you to Hillary, Robert, and Professor Sam Harshner for joining us on the podcast to talk about how our state, our city, our country is doing when it comes to unionization, but particularly how the Colectivo workers are doing in their efforts to unionize. I will say as of this recording on June 8th, there is no verdict yet. The NLRB is still reviewing the workers' efforts to unionize and those particular ballots that have been challenged. And so keep an eye out for what the result will end up being. But in true Bridges City form, I'm going to close this out with the action steps of our guests. But remember, as always, please reach out and let us know how you have helped bridge the city. Bridge the city, bridge the city, yeah. Bridge the city, yeah. Gotta bridge the city, the city. Bridge the city, bridge the city, yeah. Bridge the city, yeah. Gotta bridge the city, the city. Yeah, I mean the the Colectivo Union campaign is 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 almost at its end. It's 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 wrapping up. Um, but I mean when when it when we do succeed. Go and buy coffee at Colectivo. Go and support the workers. You know, we've, there's still other stuff that's going to happen in terms of negotiating a contract and fulfilling that contract to come. Um, and if the Colectivo workers ever do end up in a labor dispute with the company, then support the workers. You know, whatever whatever their asks are, whatever asks come from the Colectivo collective, um, you know, so go, go support them. And, and go, you know, Colectivo will, could potentially be a union company soon. So go and buy the product. Um you know, and support that company um, because, you know, supporting them means supporting the workers and supporting a, a workers that are fairly represented uh, by a union. Um, more broadly, I mean, I, I bet you a lot of working class people are listening to this podcast, are going to be listening to it. And I, I just want to uh, convey to, to them that, look, you, your, your work is valuable. You know, we've, we've learned that through this pandemic is that you produce value with your labor. And we, we're not going to go back now. The working class isn't going to go back to how things were, you know, before, how, how they have been um, in, the, in the manufacturing sector, in the service sector, anywhere. Um, you know, any work that you do, you are producing value and you deserve to be compensated fairly for the value that you create. Um, and if you feel that you're being mistreated, if you feel that things aren't right where you work by your job or by how your manager is treating you or by how the owner is treating you or anything like that, um, you can you can start to organize a union. I mean, this was the first union campaign that, that I worked on and it, I def- it definitely won't be my last, but, you know, anybody can do it. You know, if you believe that you deserve more, you can you can do it. You can you can set up a union. You can talk to your coworkers. You can start that organizing process, um, and you know, get what you deserve. Um, you know, the minimum wage is not a living wage. Um, you know, there's there's no way to live working forty hours a week at seven twenty five, or if you're like a server, a bartender, significantly less than that, like two two dollars something, two thirty. Um, you know, that's, that's poverty wages. Um, and if we want anything to change in this, in this country around how labor is structured, we're going to have to fight for it. Those in the community who have followed our Instagram page are aware of our efforts to create, um, like a tangible, um, way for workers to see the community support for the union. And um, we've asked people to change their name in their Collectivo app to something like um, Union Strong and then their first name. It's important that if you do that, it's all one word. Um, so it'd be Solidarity Hillary, all one word, would be a great a great way to um, to put that in your in your ordering app as your 
what's been so um, helpful for me and for my coworkers is to have uh, customers come in and share with us that they support us and that they hope that we win our union. Um, so I think a big thing is just being kind to your barista um, and being understanding that if something's taking a little too long, um, maybe your barista is just as unhappy with that as you are. Um, and just, you know, be a good neighbor. Uh, but then large scale, I think what I would love is for people to educate themselves on the PRO Act. Um, and one way that they can do that is to go to um, wisafl-cio.org. So that's um, w-i-s-a-f-l-c-i-o.org. And to um, figure out how they can learn more about the PRO Act and how they can contact their senators and encourage them to vote in favor of the PRO Act. Um, and if that passes the Senate, it would be a huge benefit for workers in America. Um, I think it's been incredible to see here in Milwaukee um, the number of coffee coffee companies that have tried to organize just in the past, you know, few years here. But then also um, across the nation. Two things. First thing is is obvious. Uh, if you if you work in an ununionized workplace, uh, start looking into unionizing your workplace. That's that's the that's the best thing to do. The other the other thing I would say is that there's a piece of legislation uh, that's that's stuck in the Senate right now called the Pro Act, which is the Protect uh, was Protect the Right to Organize Act, uh, and basically what it does is it it undoes the kind of restrictions on organizing established by the Taft Hartley Act, which was passed back in the, in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, um, and it does things like increase penalties for violating uh, uh, violating uh, National Labor Relations Act um, uh, regulations on on how you run an election. Uh, it, uh, it, it makes it easier. It, it makes it, um, you know, it makes it easier to collect dues. Um, it does a number of things that, that actually uh, puts labor in a situation where it can have a, a reasonable chance of success in, in, um, uh, in a modern context. Um, it's very, uh, the, President Biden has come out uh, forcefully for it. It passed the House. Uh, it's down to a few senators in uh, in, uh, in in the Senate, and uh, there is there are a bunch of efforts that are uh, out there uh, organizing to push these senators to vote. Senators to vote yes on the Pro Act, and if the Pro Act passes, that opens a whole bunch of doors for for labor organizing. Thanks again for listening. This episode was produced by me, Benjamin Rangel, also edited by me, music by Casey Masters. Subscribe, rate, share with your friends, and of course, bridge the city whenever you can.